Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. First, I just want to uh, thank all of you publicly. Holly and I are just are so thankful that we live in a family and a community that, that allow us to take a break. Um, and uh, we see that, and, and we love that, and we're just so thankful for it, and it's, it's my absolute pleasure to squeeze out one more drop of ministry before, uh, before we take a break, so I'm really excited about it. But uh, this is our last uh, message in the series Community, and just as a highlight, because I don't think it's really been announced from stage yet, just so you know, uh, next week it's a Sela, and then when we come back, we're going to start a series in Revelation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and this series will be a little bit different than uh, normal because we're going to be in Revelation for six months. Yeah. And I'm jacked about it. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so buckle up. Uh, yeah, it's going to be so awesome. Uh, your, your minds are going to be blown probably a hundred different times and you're going to have to unlearn things and relearn some things because the book of Revelation has just been completely abused and, and mistreated. Um, and so we're going, to, we're going to have to reset some stuff, but it's going to be so much fun. It's going to be awesome. But first, we have to, I, I, can't, I can't get in the next six months yet as much as I want to because we have one more to go in community. But so in, in community, we've, we've been changing up our sermon structures a bit. The first week, Heidi preached an awesome message, and then we were able to feast together, which was awesome. And then the second week, uh, Chris preached an awesome message, and we were able to have this, this corporate time of, of prayer and prophecy, and it was extremely powerful. I received a word that was just right on it. It has uh, encouraged me and um, uh, strengthened me and challenged me over these past several weeks, and so that was amazing. Hopefully, you had the same experience. Um, and then last week, we heard some amazing testimonies, um, and so it's just been really awesome. And so this week, uh, the kind of different structures that we're going to have baptisms. And we, we do baptisms sometimes, but uh, we haven't really announced it. We just want this to kind of be a spontaneous thing. Um, and parents, just so you're aware, toward the end of the message, as I'm explaining baptisms, I'm going to have the, the five and six-year-olds and up come in and sit down here because I want them to participate and be a part of that and hear what baptism is about and be able to respond if the Lord is calling them. And so I'm just preparing you now that uh, at, like we're going to you know, close out the, ser- uh, the, the, the sermon and then we're going to do a song so people can respond. During that time, the kids are going to come back to you. And so if your child asks you, uh, like, hey, I want to get baptized, I'm just preparing you now that you might have to have that conversation. Okay? But good news for you, you'll be listening to the sermon, hopefully, so you'll be equipped uh, to, to be able to talk to them. So anyway, um, so this morning, what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to try and be as brief as possible because we have a lot of stuff going on, but uh, stay as obedient as possible to what the Lord wants me to say. So I'll try and walk that line as best I can. But there's something that Heidi said uh, really toward the beginning of her message uh, in, in the first week that was a real confirmation and encouragement for me about what I, was, what I was supposed to be talking about today. And something that Heidi said, and it didn't really have that much application to the rest of her message, but she said the Lord told her a while ago, I forget when she said it was, uh, it was a very simple word. All God said was, I want your attention. I want your attention. And the reason why that was significant for me is because the one line that I had in my head for this series was, worship is about attention. 
And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to pray quick and then we'll, we'll dive in. Jesus, we just give you all the glory that you're due this morning. God, we turn our eyes, we turn our attention, we turn our affection toward you. Because apart from you, we have no hope. Apart from you, we have no reason for joy, no reason for celebration. But God, you're the rock that we can build our lives on, and so we worship you for that this morning. God, would you open our eyes to the things that we are giving our attention to, and, and where that attention is errant, would you correct it? And may we put our attention on your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout this whole series, we've, we've been uh, focusing on this passage in Acts, Acts 2, 42 through 47. So that's where I'm going to start, and we're going to tease some things out of it. And they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. We've already done like all of those things in the previous three, three weeks. That was kind of the structure of this whole uh, sermon series was to just kind of participate in what this passage was talking about. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being performed by the apostles. And all who believed were in the same place and had everything in common. Look at the unity there. Look at the uni unity that this, this fellowship and this, uh, this attention toward Christ is fostering. And they began selling their possessions and property and distributing these things to all to the degree that anyone had need. And every day devoting themselves to meeting with one purpose. There's that unity again in the temple courts and breaking bread from house to house. These people were having a lot of parties and doing a lot of feasting. Reiterating Heidi's challenge from week, week one, participate in that feasting and that fellowship. That's all I'll say. And they were eating their food with joy and simplicity of heart. Some of your translations might say generosity or sincerity. Uh, we're going to talk about why simplicity is better later, at least for this sermon. Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding every day to the total of those who were being saved. And so as I said, this week we, we are talking about worship, and worship is an act of attention to the living God. Worship is an act of attention in general. Whatever you are giving your attention to, you are worshiping it. Now I'm not just talking about like I'm paying attention to this bottle right now and taking a drink. Right, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like I'm looking at my phone because I'm reading an email or something like that. that. That's not attention. Your eyes are physically participating in that, but where is the attention of your soul? Where is the attention of your heart and your spirit as you are doing those things? That's, that's the sort of attention that I'm talking about. So anything that you are giving your spirit attention to is worship. So the question is, what are you worshiping? Is your attention on the throne? Do you have this unified attention of your spirit toward the throne or is your attention on something else? Let's go back to verse 46 and 47 where I talked about that simplicity of heart because this is important. 
uh, verse 46, and every day devoting themselves to meeting with one purpose in the temple courts and breaking bread from house to house. They were eating their food with joy and simplicity of heart. That word simplicity there in, in the Greek literally means, there's several different meanings, but it literally means unencumbered or untangled. Or in the, in the context of agriculture, it means smooth ground with no rocks and no stumbling blocks. That's what that word simplicity of heart means. So that's why I don't really like generous that much. Sincere is okay. But simplicity of heart. And so what this means is that there was nothing restricting their praise. There was nothing holding it back. There were no stumbling blocks. There was no entanglements. There was no encumberments. There was nothing restricting their praise. They had simplicity of heart. There was a clarity and a focus about what the attention of their spirit was on that produced praise and worship. And so how do we get this simplicity of heart? And it's really quite simple. It is a life with a unified attention toward Christ. And again, we're talking about spirit attention, not just physical attention. It's a life of unified attention toward Christ. That's how you get this simplicity of heart. Because there's something about worship and giving Jesus the attention that he is due that centers and focuses and clarifies our lives. Clarifies what we are going through, what we are experiencing, and how we should respond to it. If you have a unified attention toward the throne of Christ, you're going to respond to things in a very different way. And you're going to respond to things in a unified and a simple way. Doesn't mean that things aren't going to be difficult, but it will be simple because you're, you have a unified attention toward the, toward the throne of Christ. And this is the simplicity of heart that Acts is talking about. You see, the greatest antidote to like worry or bitterness or loneliness or unhealthy competition that often uh, ends up breeding uh, bitterness or loneliness. The greatest antidote to just about everything is attention to the throne. It's attention to the throne because when our eyes are on the throne, when we have this unified attention to the throne of Christ, it makes us see distractions differently. Distractions lose their power. It doesn't mean that they go away, but distractions lose their power. And so if you have financial problems in your life, putting your attention on Christ doesn't necessarily get rid of those financial problems, but it centers you and focuses you and clarifies, okay, my eyes are on the savior of the universe. Yes, this thing is over here, but that distraction doesn't have any power about how I'm supposed to respond in this situation. If you have a, a, a wayward child, and yes, that is unbelievably difficult, and just focusing on Jesus doesn't make that go away, but it removes the power of the distraction of how you're supposed to respond, how you're supposed to live your life. That creates the simplicity of heart. Do you see where that simplicity of heart comes in? It removes the complications and the entanglements and the distractions when you have a unified attention toward the throne of Christ in every aspect of your life. See, God is looking for uncomplicated, unencumbered attention in every facet of your life. Worship goes far beyond the three songs that we just sang. As amazing as those are, and as a musician myself, like, I love that. But worship is far more than singing. Worship is singing. Worship is also silence. 
just being still. Experiencing the presence of God. Attention toward him on the throne. Eyes fixed in awe of your creator. And saying and doing nothing. Silence is worship. Prayer is worship. Prayer when, when, you're, when, you're, tell, when you're thankful, when you're telling God how amazing he is, he, he is or, or describing to God back to him his character. Prayer when you're asking something from God, when you're presenting your request before God is also worship because when you bring something before the throne of the Father, you are acknowledging, God, you're the only one that has the answer. You're the only one that can do anything about this. And so my focus is on you. And I might not like the answer, but my focus is on you. Prayer is worship. Fasting is worship. Dancing and celebrating and feasting is worship. We had an amazing example of this last night. Uh, I was able to go to Jason and Sylvie. Are they here this morning? Probably not. I don't think so. That's fine. Um, I was going to make him stand up and embarrass him or something like that. I don't know if you can embarrass Jason, but... So it was, uh, they, are, they had already been married, but they never really had a full celebration yet. And so on their one-year anniversary, they had a big party, and it was awesome. And there was food and dancing and singing and music, and it was a ton of fun. And it would have been real easy to just participate in the fun. But if you, if you had, and I, I was really intentional about this last night, if you had a, a unified attention toward Christ, man, I had so much worship last night, and it was so awesome. Celebrating and feasting and dancing can be worship if your attention is toward the throne. Any other activity? Hunting? Kipper, you're not in here. He's out there. Kip, hunting. Dalt, my other hunter's in here. Hunting can be worship. Biking, walking, golfing, whatever it is. If you are doing something with attention toward the throne, it is worship. Playing with your kids, this is one of, one of my favorites. It's not, uh, it's not always what I want to do, but it does recenter me back on, on who I am as a father. But uh, I have boys, for those of you that don't know, and we like to play rough like a lot of boys do. We wrestle and punch each other, and it's so much fun. And there's just, there's something, yeah, there's something so sweet about participating in that, 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 that son-father activity together that, that just... It illuminates something about the Father's heart toward me. And it can just be an amazing time of, of worship. And then I get hit in the nuts. And um, <laughs> then, it turns, then it turns to a different kind of worship, but it's a, it's a prayer of Jesus, come quickly. I'm in need of salvation. <laughs> Playing with your children is worship. Yes. Work can be worship. If you're doing it with an attention toward Christ. Work is not to be worshipped, but work can be worship. How you're treating your coworkers, how you're treating your customers, how do you run your business? Is it with an attention toward the throne room of Christ? And so my challenge to you this week is to try and pick 
one thing in your life that you don't normally equate with worship and turn it into worship this week, just one thing. And don't just do it once, like pick one thing and say, all right, I know I do this thing every day. Like this week, this thing is going to become worship for me. Super easy, well, not super easy, super simple, practical way to say worship is, is beyond Sunday. Worship is beyond just singing in my car. And, and make it something that's not singing. I'm making that rule right now. Like you can't sing unless you never sing. And if that's the case, one, uh, that's a problem. And two, then just make that your thing. That's fine. But you're the only person that gets that, uh, that, gets that pass. What are some other aspects of worship? Worship is also responsive, right? And this one should be pretty easy to understand, right? Worship is a response to the manifestation of God's nature. All right, that's pretty self-explanatory. When God reveals himself, our attention turn to- turns towards him, right? Pretty easy. Like what happens every time when someone in the Bible sees an angel? Like, so the angel has just been in the presence of God, not there anymore. So God's presence is just kind of stuck on the angel a little bit. And when the angel comes before people, what is always the response? They worship. So just, just a glimpse of the nature of God is revealed and people respond in worship. Okay, pretty easy to understand. Uh, other examples, all of Exodus 15 or most of Exodus 15 is basically a, a song that was written by Moses and the Israelites after God delivered them from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. So I'm just going to read the first couple of verses of it. Exodus 15, 1 through 2. It says, And let me sing to Yahweh because he has highly exalted the horse and its rider he hurled into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, the God of my father, and I will exalt him. And that continues for about another 16 verses. That's in response to God showing his nature and revealing who he is, and the people responded in worship. Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah all respond in worship uh, to God surrounding their pregnancies and the birth of their children. That's John the Baptist and Jesus. And there's a couple little songs and verses in the New Testament that you can look up. I don't have time to read them all. But they respond in worship around, the pregnant, around God's divine intervention in their pregnancies and in the births. Many of the Psalms of David were wrote in response to God's intervention on his behalf. When he was saved from the hand of Saul, when he was given victory over the Israelites, when, when God forgave his sins. This is responsive worship. And so my second challenge to you this week is to find something to respond and worship to. Find something to respond and worship to. And, and maybe it's as simple as, you know, like, you, you got the close parking spot or something like that. That's a pretty lame one. But, like, 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 anything that is good in your life, something good that happens this week, just choose to say, rather than just saying, oh, that's really cool, say, no, like, God, I, I'm, I'm responding in worship because I see you revealing your nature in that thing. So you have homework this week. Now, sticking with David, David didn't just worship after God delivered him. David worshiped both before and during the hardships. That's because worship is also preparatory and prophetic. Worship is preparatory and prophetic. It prepares the way for a move of God. Worship prepares the way for a move of God. 
think I, no, that's right. I thought my notes got mixed up because I turned them so many times. Worship prepares the way for a move of God. And there are lots of different examples of this uh, in, in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. When David is in, is in the midst of a trial, he's in the, the you know, Saul has surrounded him, he's, he's stuck in a cave. Or somebody else is betraying him, and David is basically saying, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why is all of this going on? But at the end of almost all of those Psalms, David says, but my soul will still praise him. My soul will still praise him. Yes, praise him. I, I know there's more there, but uh, it's gone. That's okay. So, oh, you know what? I found it. Oh, man. As you can see, sabbaticals are necessary. <laughs> I'm going to read one of those Psalms from David. Psalm 43, verse 3 through 5. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This also happens in the New Testament. Paul and the apostles uh, Paul and Silas and a couple other of the disciples are in a town and they start worshiping in the midst of hardship, in the midst of beatings and imprisonments. And one of these examples is in Acts uh, 16. And kind of the background for this is that uh, Paul and Silas and some of the other uh, disciples are doing ministry in the town and there's this slave girl who has a, a demon inside of her and she's just going, she's just following them all around and, and saying, like, these guys know the son of God. And she's just creating disturbances or whatever. And after a couple days, Paul finally gets fed up with it and casts the demon out of her. Uh, and she's healed. But the problem is that the slave girl had owners who were using her demonic abilities to profit off of her. And so they get ticked, of course, because now they can't make any money. And so they uh, capture Paul and Silas and the other disciples, bring them before the authorities, and they have a trial. And they throw them in prison. And so we're going to pick up in verse 25. Acts 16, 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were turning their attention toward him. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Not just Paul and Silas. Everyone's bonds. Worship is preparatory and prophetic. It prepares the way for a move of God. And what ends up happening in that story is that the jailer feels the earthquake, runs in, sees that all the doors are open and there's chains on the ground, and he actually starts to, to try to kill himself because he thinks everybody has escaped. And Paul says, whoa, 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 we're still here. Everything's fine. 
You just need to know that it was Jesus that did this. And so what ends up happening is that the jailer takes all of the prisoners to his house, cleans their wounds, feeds them, and the entire entire family of the jailer is saved. Your worship, which is preparatory and prophetic, has impacts far beyond yourself. It prepares the way for a move of God. How about the siege of Jericho? When the Israelites were going around the city of Jericho, what went first? Yes, the ark was there, the the symbol of the power and the presence of God. But what went before the ark? The trumpets and the worshipers. Even in the Old Testament, there there was preparatory and prophetic worship before the power of God broke out. Even on the last day, when it wasn't just the worshipers and the trumpets, on the last lap, on the last day, the, trumper, the, the, the trumpeters and trumpeteers, I don't know how you say that, uh, and the worshipers blew a, blew a blast and everybody participated. Everybody shouted. And then the walls came down. Worship prepares the way for a move of God. And I just have to give a quick revelation plug here because I'm super excited about it. But this happens all the time in Revelation. There are lots of different scenes in Revelation of the throne room of God and what is happening. Every time there's a, there's a scene in the throne room of God, somebody is worshiping. And, and everybody is. And they're either worshiping uh, with their voices or bowing down, but sometimes they're also silent. So in uh, the, the example I have is in Revelation 4, the, the beasts, the elders, all of the saints are worshiping. And then what happens? And then God breaks out and moves on the earth. But the, the catch is that revelation, or in Revelation, or in heaven, worship is always happening. There's preparatory worship. There is like we're worshiping God right now, and there's responsive worship after God moves. And we get to participate in that. That's pretty cool. And so what I believe is that where there is an increase in worship, I believe there will also be an increase in signs and wonders. Where there's an increase in worship, there will be an increase in signs and wonders. Let's actually go back to uh, our passage in Acts, Acts 2.43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. That word awe there is attention. It can also be translated as fear. So when you are in awe of something or somebody, like you're giving you, you're giving it your attention, correct? And so what this verse says, it doesn't say that many signs and wonders were performed, and so awe came upon every soul. It says, and awe was upon every soul. There was this unified attention toward the throne, and Many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. Worship prepares the way for a breakthrough of God. And where there is an increase in worship, I believe there will be an increase in signs and wonders. Now, worship does not manipulate God. Let me be very clear. You cannot manipulate God with anything that you do. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is when Jesus says, I lay my life down of my own accord and I take it up again. Like if you can make a baller statement like that, like, like I'm the one who chooses when I die and I'm the one who chooses when I come back to life, right? God is not manipulated by our worship. 
Worship doesn't twist God's arm, and so what happens? Why, if there's an increase in worship, why does what we're doing down here shift or reflect God's interaction with us and him breaking out in power? Why does that happen? I believe it's mainly for two reasons. And just going to be really quick here, because we could talk about this for a very long time. And I know we will in Revelation. So, number one, when he has our attention, we will hear more and receive more. And when we hear more and receive more, if we will obey more, we will see more. If our attention is on the throne, we will hear more and we will receive more, receive more revelation from him. And from that hearing and receiving, if we obey with what the Lord is telling us to do, we will see more. Because what happens when you obey God? He does what he says he's going to do. Now, at the very least, obeying God creates an increase in holiness. And that in and of itself is a miracle, right? But if God is telling you to do something, yes, here come the kiddos. Awesome. Come on, kids, just go ahead and sit down. You're fine. Everybody's looking at you, but it's okay. Awesome. Increase in holiness in itself is a miracle. But if God is, if, if in, in hearing from God and receiving from him, you feel that God is moving to go heal someone or encourage someone or speak a word of prophecy over them and you go obey, guess what is more likely to happen? God's actually going to do that thing. And so as we worship, we will hear more and receive more. And so if we obey more, we will be able to see more. Number two, worship shows God that our hearts are prepared to take the result of the outpouring. Worship shows God that we are prepared to take the result of the outpouring and increase our worship back to him, not to a person, not to a ministry, not to any other thing. Worship shows that our hearts are ready to take the result of the outpouring. And worship does not manipulate God, but it is proof that we are ready to receive from him and receive properly and respond properly. And this is where worship becomes warfare. This is where things get exciting. Kids, I'm so happy you're in here. Our worship to Yahweh is a rejection of the powers of darkness and a declaration that he is the most high God and all of our loyalty and all of our affection is on him. That's the nature of worship. When our attention is on him, it's a rejection of the powers of darkness, a rejection of the world, and an, an acknowledgement that he is the one who's seated on the throne and he is the one to be worshiped. That in and of itself is the most basic nature of spiritual warfare. Reject the powers of darkness, acknowledge that he is Lord. That is spiritual warfare. The most basic nature of spiritual warfare is giving attention to the one who has already won the victory. And so if you're in a battle, look up. Turn your attention toward the throne. Have you been in a battle lately and, and, and not been fighting with worship? Not been fighting with an attention toward the throne?
what battles have you been fighting without worship? I hate to be cliche, but there's a reason why Michael W. Smith wrote, this is how I fight my battles, right? We fight with worship and attention toward the one who has already won the victory. Another thing is that there is, in this, uh, in this vein of worship being warfare, there is an undertone of defiance in, in prophetic and preparatory worship and warfare worship. And it's a defiance of the powers of darkness. That's the sort of defiance I'm talking about. Not a rebel heart, but it, 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 unless you're in rebellion against the powers of darkness, then that's a good thing. But there's this undertone of defiance in prophetic and preparatory worship. So I'm going to read Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, and I want you to look, at, at, look for these threads in this passage. And the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn instead of mourning, to have a garment, to, to have a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and they may be called oaks of righteousness. Those that were broken, those that were imprisoned, those that were lost would be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins, not the ones that had it all together. The ones that were covered in ashes, the ones that were mourning, the ones that were in prison, they are the ones that shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Do you see the defiance of the powers of darkness in that passage? That is warfare worship. It's an attention toward the throne, and it's a, clar- it's a clarifying and a focusing thought that even though, even though the world seems like it's in, it, it's in destruction and in darkness, even though I'm lonely, even though I'm in prison, even though I have a headdress of ashes and not a beautiful headdress, even though nobody's anointing my head with oil, if I am focused on the throne room of Christ, I'm actually the one that's rebuilding ruined cities. It's a rejection of the powers of darkness. It's a removal of the power of those distractions. It's something that is clarifying and and centralizing in our lives about how we're to respond. It's a declaration of the reality of the kingdom of God. That is warfare and worship. Now, one prophetic and defiant act of worship is baptism. And kids, this is why I wanted you guys to come in here so you could hear about baptism and respond to baptism if that's what the Lord is calling you to do. See, baptism is worship and it's warfare. Baptism is, is prophetic worship because all of, our, all of our attention is on the victory of Jesus and it's prophetic because it's a symbol of the death of our old selves and the birth of our new selves. It's, that, it's this, this symbol of kind of the already not yet. Like, yes, my old self is dead. I still have to struggle with it, but I am living in my new self. So it's prophetic worship, but it's also warfare because it's a public declaration that Satan is defeated and hell has been robbed once again. 
Baptism is warfare. One of the best kinds of warfare. Because when you're baptized, you're saying, my old self is dead. I am rejecting Satan. And I'm declaring that Jesus is Lord. And that God has rescued me from the kingdom of darkness and brought me into the kingdom of light. He has saved me. Baptism is warfare. It's a public declaration that you renounce your old self. You defy your old gods. You defy your old desires. And now all your loyalty, all your trust, all your hope, all your affection, and all your attention is on the victorious one who is seated on the throne right now. And he's looking down at you and saying, participate with me in this victory. That's what baptism is about. Baptism is when you have such a desire to leave your old self behind that you are willing to die to your old self. It's not just, oh, I'll change. No. You are willing to die to your old self. It's saying, Jesus, for the moments that I am under that water, by your grace and by your spirit, would you put my old self to death? And as I come out, by your grace and by your spirit, would you breathe new life into me and make me a new creation? And so if you've never accepted Jesus this morning, but you want to accept him today, baptism is for you. If you've never accepted Jesus and you have very little idea of what I'm talking about, let me just tell you that you probably already know that you can't make it through life on your own. You're not perfect. You never will be. And if you're honest with yourself and you look, you look back on your life, there's probably some devastation in its wake. All that devastation is because you're a sinner. But God says, you're not a sinner. You are mine. Yes, you're a sinner right now, but if you believe in me, if you believe in me so that for the salvation of your sins, you can come into my kingdom. You can be redeemed. All of that will be gone and you can punch Satan in the throat for good. You don't have to listen to him anymore because he doesn't have power or authority over you anymore unless you give it to him. Because when you sit next to me on my throne, no one can take you from me. Or maybe you are a Christian this morning, but you haven't experienced this beautiful act of defiant worship and warfare. So I'm inviting you to get baptized today as well. And if you have been baptized before, baptism is still for you. And I know some people might not like hearing that, but we'll talk about it a little bit. See, by its nature, at the most basic nature of baptism, baptism is ceremonial and public repentance. That's what it is. Baptism is ceremonial and public repentance 
repentance. It's, it's a cleansing. It's a symbol and a public declaration that through God's grace and mercy, you are significantly different than you were before. You have a, a renewed level of purity and devotion and attention to following Yahweh. That's what baptism is. The first time or any subsequent times. Baptism doesn't save you. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense that you're only supposed to be baptized once. You're not supposed to be baptized other times necessarily, but it doesn't make sense like, well, if you baptize somebody again, then it's wrong. It doesn't really jive with the entirety of the theology of Scripture. And baptism was done all the time in the Old Testament. There were all kinds of washings and bathings and things like that that people had to do to show that they were different than they were before. Like, I, I was dirty before, but now I, I'm pure and I have a renewed devotion and intimacy and attention toward the throne of Christ. The focal point of John the Baptist's entire ministry was baptism. And, and get this, John the Baptist wasn't baptizing Christians because Christians didn't exist yet. Right? John the Baptist was baptizing Jews who, wanted, who were being called to a ceremonial public repentance because they, John, John was saying, you need to repent because you have grown cold. You've grown cold. There are ashes that need to be washed away so that that little ember that's in there can be blown into a flame again. That was the entire crux of John the Baptist's ministry. That old lukewarm self is now cleansed and what remains is white, hot devotion to God. And so if you've been baptized before, don't write this off. Please don't write this off. Ask the Lord. We're going to have the band come up and respond or, or do a song. And as we're doing that, I want you to ask the Lord, God, am I, am I in this transition? Like, are you calling me out of where I was into where I am now? And do I need to cement that in the ground right now with a ceremonial public repentance? Is that what you're calling me to do? Or is there an area of your life that's grown cold? So maybe just like in John the Baptist's ministry, maybe there are some things that you need to repent from, have those old ashes washed away so that what remains is a white hot ember that can be kindled and fed into a new fire of the Spirit. Maybe you need to remind yourself and remind Satan that your old self is dead. Really dead. Like dead, dead, dead. So maybe you need to remind yourself and remind Satan. Again, this is spiritual warfare. Punch Satan in the throat once again and say, I am dead. I am seated with Christ in heaven. You have no power over me. And to show you that, I'm getting baptized again just so you know you can't take me from him no one can so I'm making another public declaration that I belong to him and any of the old junk that was still there is getting washed away so that this new flame can be blown into existence and so you better watch out Satan because I'm coming for you
coming. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've been a Christian for 30 years and maybe you've been baptized before but you've grown cold. Maybe today's for you. Maybe you're in this transition period and you want to consecrate yourself to the Lord, washing away your old self and being raised into new life. Maybe today's for you. Kids, maybe you've never been baptized or maybe you don't know Jesus yet. And so when the band plays, if you guys feel like Jesus is calling you to be baptized, I want you to go back and find your parents and talk to them about it, okay? Because if you guys want to get baptized, we can baptize you today if your parents want you to too, okay? The same goes for the rest of you. We have clothes, we have towels, we have everything that you need. So if you feel like the Lord is calling you to get baptized today, don't let anything stop you. It's not about what other people think. In fact, it's very much supposed to be done in public so that we can all celebrate and joy with you that hell has been robbed once again that Satan's being punched in the face once again. And we can all turn our attention toward the throne and the one who's sitting on it is the one that saved you, the lamb who was slain. It's supposed to be public and it's supposed to be awesome. So I'm gonna pray. Uh, The band is going to play one more song. During that time, kids, you can go back to your parents and talk to them. Uh, If you feel like the Lord is calling you to get baptized, just go into the back. We have people back there ready for you that can give you clothes, help you get changed, uh, and and then we're going to have baptisms, okay? Father, we just thank you for this time that you've given us together. God, thank you for your spirit that, that convicts us, that moves in us. God, thank you for your patience with us. God, forgive us when our attention is on something other than you. When our attention is on something other than your throne. God, by your grace right now, we, we, we sing this song in preparatory and prophetic worship to watch you break out and change people's lives and light them on fire for your kingdom. So God, we just ask that right now that you would prepare this place with your spirit. And that you would stir in our hearts to respond to you and to be made new. God, we worship you and we praise you. God, by the power of your spirit, would you change our hearts and give us a unified attention toward the throne in every aspect of our lives. God, we we plead for a simplicity of heart. God, that everything that we do is filtered through our attention to your throne. And everything that we experience is is centered and focused and clarified by you sitting on the throne and us being next to you. So God, we worship you. Would you move in this place and move in these people? In Jesus' name.